Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so that organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we have Charles Cook, the senior writer from National Review. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Outstanding, Ron. Really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Let me uh, read an abbreviated bio of Charles C.W. Cook as a senior writer for National Review and the former editor of National Review Online. He is a graduate of the University of Oxford, at which he studied modern history and politics. He's the co-host of Mad Dogs and Englishman podcast that he does with Kevin Williamson, also previous guest on the show, and is a regular guest on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. I've got to ask him how he puts up with that. He is also the author of The Conservatarian Manifesto, Libertarians, Conservatives, and the Fight for the Rights Future, which was published in 2015. He's also a roller coaster fan, so we'll definitely talk about that. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Charlie Cook. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Uh, just want to dive right into your book, The Conservatarian Manifesto. I have to tell you, I love the term. I know it's awkward. I know it's a mouthful, but I, I think it conveys the right spirit. And you write in the book that the term first appeared on your radar in 2006. And there's a fantastic insight. And I, I, I can't tell you how true I think this is. When I'm around conservatives, I feel like a libertarian. And when I'm around libertarians, I feel more like a conservative. Uh, I was at an LP event, a Libertarian Party event with Ed. And I was sitting at the table and we were all talking about what we were. And I said, I'm a conservatarian. And I got blank stares. <laughs> they was like, what is that? And so, Charles, what is a conservatarian? Well, the first thing to say on that is I think for various people, it does vary. Um, it essentially describes a person who has some conservative views and some libertarian views in the book. Uh, and this is the manifesto part, which is a slightly tongue in cheek joke. It's a red book. It's called manifesto. <laughs> I used to say joke to people at the time. I'm, I'm an immigrant who's written a manifesto and we're meeting in secret and I have a beard. This is not going to end well. Um, but the, what I tried to do in the book was to outline what I thought the right balance should be. And, and I tried to do that in a couple of ways. The first one was to point out what conservatives offer society. And the second was to point out what libertarians offer society and to argue that we genuinely need both. And then the second way of doing that was to lay out my view of each policy in turn. Um, on the first point, I really do think that there is an enormous benefit to understanding that what came before you is often the way it is for a reason. And in that respect, I suppose this, that's why I don't call myself a progresso conservatarian, <laughs> because I don't think that progressives value Chesterton's fence. I, I don't think they 
have enough humility in their ideology or their philosophy to, to value what came before them. And, and I think conservatives do. And I think that when you're dealing with a country that has been as dynamic and as successful as the United States, it really is important not to give in to the temptation to burn it all down because it is imperfect, which of course it is. But libertarians are useful in that they are distrustful of power, they're distrustful of entrenched interests, and sometimes Chesterton's fence is wrong. <laughs> I mean, there are some circumstances in which you really do have inequalities or prejudices that should be knocked over. And uh, I think I want those fences to, to be knocked over by people who have liberty in mind, not by people who have control in mind. So the, the first point there is when those two groups combine, they tend to do a pretty good job of keeping the important parts and, and changing um, the bits that need changing. On the issues, um, my, my view is that I, I am inevitably going to disagree with people who are self-described conservatarians. That's absolutely fine. Um, but, but at the heart of the book is, is an endorsement of disagreement. The heart of the book I wrote is, is a, an endorsement of federalism. The idea being, look, there's a huge continental nation. We have 330 million people and we just don't agree. Um, it's hard to imagine us agreeing. And right from the beginning of this country, we didn't agree. The Massachusetts Bay Colony Puritans did not agree with the Quakers of Pennsylvania, but they didn't think they had to. They came together, they wrote a constitution, and that constitution left room for them to dissent from one another and still thrill to the idea of being an American. And my point was, look, why, when we are as, as individualized and, and diverse in the real sense of that word, not in the modern sense, which is everyone agrees, but they have different immutable characteristics. Why are we trying to run everything from the center? Why are we so upset with each other? It's fine if Utah is Utah. It's fine if Florida is Florida. It's fine if Massachusetts is Massachusetts. There are some things you can't compromise on, the Bill of Rights, civil rights. You don't want to go back to Jim Crow, but on energy, transportation, healthcare, taxes, business regulation, you know, there really is no need for us to all agree or to try to agree. And, and so although I lay out my views as to where the balance is, um, I also left a lot of room for people who dissent to say, that's okay, we can all live under the same flag. Right. Now, and the other thing that I really loved is you quoted one of Reagan's most famous statements, the very heart and soul of conservatism is libertarianism. And without it, the right is nothing. And it, it, like Ed's a libertarian and I'm more of a conservatarian. I mean, than the William F. Buckley and Thomas Sowell strain, uh, I do have a big conservative streak thanks to national review. Um, but I agree with Ed on 70 or 80%. He's not my enemy. He's my friend. Do, do you think fusionism, a return to fusionism, if it's splintered is possible? I do. I mean, I'd say a couple of things on your first point. One of the reasons Reagan said that is that there's a paradox in American politics that doesn't obtain in, say, Britain, where I'm from originally, in that conservatives are conservative of liberalism. Now, there is more to American conservatism than libertarianism, but one key part of it is that they wish to conserve the liberal order. There's that old line that you know, the day after the revolution, the radicals become conservatives because they want to conserve the radicalism. And I draw this analogy in the book. It, it, you know, if you are um, 
conservative of preserving your marriage, you're still married. So if you're conservative of liberalism, you know, you are in a sense a liberal in, in, the, in the classical sense of the word. Um, and, and I think that's an important distinction to, to draw out because what that means in practice is that, as you say, conservatives and libertarians often agree on a, on a great deal because they have the same ends. Um, fusionism was hugely aided by the confluence, and this is not an original insight for me, National Review built itself on this, of anti-communism, social conservatism, and free markets. Um, I, oddly enough, think we may be heading toward a period in which that coalition is sustainable again. There are many challenges to it, but we do have another communist threat now in China. I, I'm not especially hawkish. I don't want a war. I don't want to unnecessarily provoke China. But when you have a million people in concentration camps, it is worth speaking up against. And I think that that is something the right should focus on. The free market question, even if in the conservative movement, we have people who are less clearly committed to free markets in the way I would be, compared to the modern progressive movement, they all sound like Hayek. <laughs> and then clearly social conservatism um, is ascendant uh, on the right. And, and social conservatism has been broadened too. It's not just the, the classic issues of abortion uh, and, and um, religious liberty, but you also have immigration now um, is, a, is a social conservative issue. You have the Second Amendment is a social conservative issue. Um, so, yeah, I think we can get to a point at which a, a large swathe, possibly a majority of the population agrees with itself 70%. But to do that, we do have to get over this, this sort of tendency towards purity tests on the right that never really existed in the 70s, 80s and 90s, but has crept in now and is really counterproductive. Right. You know, you do a great job in the book talking about the weaknesses of libertarians and the weaknesses of conservatives. And then I think about an issue like, uh, you know, the right on guns. You know, we say, well, don't you can't blame an inanimate object for killing somebody. But then when it turns to drugs, they're all they turn into the nanny state. And I just I look at the victory that we're having with like marijuana legalization and maybe other things like in Oregon. Um and I think that's a great example of the benefits of a, you know, this fusionism idea. Yeah, I think it's a, a great example of the benefits of fusionism. I also think it's a great example of the benefits of federalism. You know, as, as libertarian as I am on drugs, and I really am, I much, much prefer that we can say, okay, let's try it in Colorado. Let's see what happens. Um, let's try it in New York, let's see what happens, rather than institute a national policy, because it could be a disaster. You know, we're all infallible. <laughs> um, and, and my argument against the drug war, and I think this is important, given that the question is not that drugs aren't bad for you. I think libertarians occasionally have a tendency to sort of downplay the ill effects of drugs. My issue is that uh, the drug war, I think, has been more destructive than drugs are. I think it's been more destructive to liberty. I think it's been more destructive to limited government. I think it's been more destructive to, to people who are, are down and out. And it's been more destructive to the people who are addicted to the drug, to drugs themselves. Um, 
And I, I, I think you saw a sort of odd example of the fusionism that you're talking about, and I'd never have predicted this in a million years, <laughs> under President Trump, where yeah. some of those 1990s drug war-led criminal justice rules were swept away. Um, now, not everyone on the right is happy about that, and I do wonder, given the rise in crime, whether it's going to stick. Um, but there does still seem to be on the right a, a general suspicion toward government and it manifests itself in odd ways. And um, one of those ways was the, the reforms to federal sentencing and a, a diminishment in the power of the government to prosecute drug crimes and, and put people away forever. Right, right. No, it's, those are great points. Uh, you also cited Margaret Thatcher, who said Europe was created by history, but America was created by philosophy. And you've experienced both, Charlie, and you came here voluntarily and became a citizen. What does this difference mean to you? Well, it's huge. I mean, it, it, it's huge. The, 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 the point I often make when talking about my own immigration process is that I'm in a different category from people who fled Cuba or Rwanda. I didn't come from a hellhole. I didn't come from persecution. I came from a really good wealthy, stable country under the rule of law. But in debating ideas, the existence of a set of rules and ideals just makes life easier if you want to make the case for individual liberty. Because in Europe, you're really pointing at a history that was driven by personalities, by, in some cases, salutary um, habit uh, by different power centers and by class. And in America, there are a whole bunch of ideas to which you can appeal that are essentially scripture, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Federalist Papers, and then the Reconstruction Amendments, the Civil Rights Movement. They're revered by Americans and they remind them every day why these ideals and these, these principles are important. And it's just so hard to do that in Britain. <laughs> well, I love talking to immigrants to this country because they seem to have a different perspective and they really appreciate liberty, whereas sometimes I think we natives take it for granted. So I, I really appreciate your passion for the country. I have a great passion for the country. <laughs> I, I always wanted to be here. I, I feel extremely um, lucky to have been accepted in. Uh, I, won, I won two lotteries. Yeah, well, it's excellent. Well, we're lucky to have you. Unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post our full show notes with Charlie and where you can find his work and links to his book. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create 
package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And the book is The Conservatarian Manifesto. We are talking with Charles Cook today. And I want to talk to you a little bit about China. You've written extensively about that. But before I do, the libertarian in me can't uh, escape the conversation that you were having with Ron and ask you about immigration. What about federalism applied to immigration? Since, in theory, the immigration is not mentioned in the Constitution, just the process of naturalization. Could we have a, a workable immigration that policy that is also federalist. So I, I think from the constitutional perspective, it would be possible for the federal government to remain silent on the question of immigration. I think in the modern era, it would be impractical though, not least because, and I'm against this, the federal government has encroached so far into almost every question. One of the things I point out in the book is that the federal government is going to have an interest in, say, gay marriage, whether we like it or not, because the federal government both controls the immigration process and plays such an outsized role in the provision of welfare. And so at some point, the federal government's going to have to make a decision. Are two men who are married in Holland able to emigrate to the United States as a couple? Is a person in the United States able to bring over somebody of the same sex uh, as their husband? And whether we like it or not, that question is now a federal concern. Uh, Another example was hospital visitation rights. There are all sorts of federal rules governing insurance documents. So My view on this is that if you take the Constitution as it is actually written, it would be entirely reasonable to to have a much more federalist approach to pretty much everything. I think the one thing you can't do is foreign policy. You can't have Texas declaring war on France, (laughs) California (laughs) dissenting. But other than that, almost every question can be resolved at the state level. Unfortunately, we don't have that system. 
We have a system in which the federal government has over time, and it really started in earnest with the New Deal, put itself into every political issue it can imagine. And as a result, I think immigration, which is one of our great cultural flashpoints, has become uh, a, a national question, a question that people really, really get upset about. And so I would be totally happy to, to reverse all of that tape and go back to a position in which it really didn't matter to people whether California had a different immigration policy than did, say, Mississippi. But until we do, I think that the libertarian argument on this question essentially puts the cart before the horse um, and asks people to accept on ideological grounds an argument that in practical terms has great effects on them, their lives and their politics. Yeah, it's clearly a challenge. It's one of those things that, where people of good faith have great arguments on both sides and, and can make intelligent arguments on it. Um, turning to, to China, I, I want to ask you this question that we've asked a number of people. It, it, we thought back in the in the 90s when China began to liberalize that there would be a, first they would liberalize from an economic standpoint and then the, the political liberalization would follow. How do we miss it? What do we get wrong? Or are we just have we just not waited long enough? <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a really great question. And, and the answer is, is I don't know. I, I'm, I'm worried, though. Um, so one of the main worries I have with China, and it relates to this, this question, is with sports. When I was a kid, we didn't have American sports in Britain. We played soccer and tennis but we knew about American sports. We knew who Michael Jordan was. We knew who Jose Canseco was, even if we didn't know any of the rules of the games that they played. And one of the things that always struck me as a teenager coming to America and starting to learn about American sports, and then somebody who came to the US as an immigrant and really is a huge sports fan, was that American sports, they homogenize the outsiders such that it doesn't really matter where your favorite baseball player is from. He's just so American. We have so many baseball players now come from Cuba, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Japan, and no one really thinks of them as outsiders. And I love this because this in, in a nutshell is the economic theory we applied to China, which is look, if we trade with them, if we show them the benefits of the West, then they will become more like us. They'll privilege free speech. They'll privilege free assembly. And the first point at which this isn't true is basketball. Instead of our foray into China with our basketball teams turning the Chinese more American, I'm seeing the NBA becoming more Chinese. I'm seeing public figures uh, you know, most notably, you've got the coach of the Golden State Warriors. You've also got LeBron James refusing to speak out and tell the truth about China, which is that it is ruled by a one-party dictatorship with a gulag. And that gulag holds a million people who are being tortured and oppressed. And that really, really worries me because... As a kid, I saw it the other way around. Look, all these great people, they emigrate to America and they become a, a New York Yankee or a Chicago Bull. 
And now I'm watching American sports teams. And, and I think, unfortunately, this is sort of the story of China and that they've managed to liberalize economically to an extent that I think is valuable. And the trade that we are engaged in with them is positive. Uh, I, I'm a free trade guy to the roots. And I, and I don't like a lot of these new right arguments that, we, that they've hollowed out our cities or that they've hurt us. I don't think that's correct. But culturally, I am worried about the direction in which many of our corporations are going. For example, with Tim Cook recently at Apple, um, he is in hock to the Chinese Communist Party. And it is, it is worrying because, as you say, what we haven't managed to achieve is to export the First Amendment to China. What we may be doing is to import some of those habits into Silicon Valley and Wall Street. And I don't want them here as a, as a you know, classically liberal guy. Well, maybe it's just we got to send the right sport, and that would be baseball, in my opinion. You know, That's because, it, I mean, it, wor it worked in Japan after World War II, is all right, I'm saying. Right. <laughs> no, it's a um, great point. It's a great point. But, of course, Japan didn't have a communist party. No, that's... <laughs> No, very, very true. Um, more seriously, we've had Father Robert Sirico on, as well as Peter Robinson, who both mentioned their relationship with Jimmy Lai, and they both interviewed him, uh, and, and uh, who is unfortunately now in, in prison, I think still in Hong Kong, which is good, I guess. Uh, is Hong Kong lost, in your opinion? My wife was actually born in Hong Kong, and so this is something I have a little bit of vicarious experience with. Um, she really considers it to be lost. Yeah. I, I, I always tease her about this because her passport says that she was born in China. And I say, no, you're born in the British empire. Um, but, but it's not really a joke. I mean, the, the, Hong Kong, when she was born, was, was a liberal Hong Kong. It was a business-oriented uh, oriented Hong Kong. Hong Kong now is more and more Chinese, and it just seems as if all of those predictions from 1997 after the handover and all of those promises from the Chinese government have given way to extraordinarily rapid takeover, um, destruction of many small L liberal norms, such that it actually sort of makes sense now that her passport says that she was born in China. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not hopeful. Um, it, 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 it's, you know, if I had my way, and you mentioned immigration, uh, I'm more, more hawkish on immigration than many libertarians for the reason I outlined. But to be honest with you, if the United States and the United Kingdom just open their borders right now to anyone in Hong Kong who wants to leave and live in a free country, I'd be in favor of it. Um, yeah. it, it it's a disgrace what has happened. Yeah. Uh, and, and Ron and I have talked about that on some of our bonus episodes that we do that. Yeah, that, that, that would be the smart move without question to yeah. throw our arms open to, to all of those folks. And now, now turning your attention to, to do you think uh, Taiwan is going to suffer the same fate? Do you think the U.S. has the enough of a backbone to resist this? And then I have a very specific question on this with regard to the Second Amendment. Amendment. Do you know about gun ownership in Taiwan? Do, do, do a lot of individuals have guns? And would that make a difference potentially if the citizenry were to be as Second Amendment fr friendly as we are here in the States? Well, so yes, I think Taiwan is going to suffer the same fate. No, I don't think that we have the backbone to intervene. 
Uh, it just does not seem to me that the American public has an appetite for the losses that would be incurred. I hope I'm wrong. On the Second Amendment, yeah, I think it would make a difference. And, and this is a broader point. Whenever I've written about the Second Amendment as a, a prophylactic against tyranny, I get letters saying, you don't understand the scale and might of the US military. And I think they're wrong. I think that even in the United States, and of course, nobody wants this to happen. This would be a nightmare scenario. This would be the destruction of everything I love, but nobody wants this to happen. But yeah, if the United States government became a tyranny, I actually do think that people would prevail. Um, I think that because if you look at what happened in Vietnam, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you can see that a committed people with small arms can hold off a superpower. And they can do so because that superpower understands the heightened costs of whatever it is that it is trying to achieve. And so if the United States, God forbid, were, were trying to subdue, say, Texas or Wyoming or Florida, um, I think it would have its work cut out. And I think that is true in China as well. Um, I think that it would be a preemptive discouragement for the Chinese government to understand that, and I know this is an apocryphal quote, but there was a rifle behind every blade of grass. Um, if you go back to George Orwell's essay on, on the atomic bomb, he points out that there are different sorts of weapons. There are weapons that lend themselves to tyranny. The atomic bomb, he said, was one of them. Tanks are another. And then there are weapons that lend themselves to democracy. There are democratic weapons. And he lists rifles, handguns, and the hand grenade. And when you, as a culture, have rifles, handguns, and hand grenades, you make it very, very difficult for the people who have the tanks and the uh, atomic bombs to do anything without sort of casting a blow that would draw so much condemnation from the international community and that would, would engender so much moral opprobrium as to lose your case for you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it would be a great thing and perhaps we should be doing what the Americans did for the Brits at the end of uh, appeasement when the war broke out in 19... 39 and sending over <laughs> hundreds of thousands of guns for them in case. Yeah. I mean, it's a very practical potential solution and relatively in the long run inexpensive, but we are up against our break. Want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. We also have our Patreon channel where we have our show, which is available commercial free as well as our bonus episodes, but that is on Patreon, Patreon dot dot com slash tsoe that is sponsored by 90 minds need a mind find one at 90 minds.com now a word from our sponsor voice america is on your favorite smart speaker if you have alexa or google home go ahead and give us a try hey alexa play finding your frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, 
package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Charles Cook, senior writer at National Review. And Charles, one of the things I've heard you talk about and kind of rail against is this uh, idea of how we pay homage to our politicians by like calling him Governor Romney. And you say, we don't have royalty in America. We have, we have employees. <laughs> and boy, did this really hit during COVID. It seems like we were being ruled. I'm in California, so you can... Yeah, I, th- I think we have a systemic, to use a buzzword of our age, problem with how we see politicians. If you go back to the early, maybe the infant republic, you will learn about a debate over what the president should be called. Now, I think the HBO John Adams miniseries, which is terrific, does slightly gild the lily with John Adams and make him look much worse than he deserves, but there was a faction of which John Adams was a part and Alexander Hamilton was a part that essentially wanted a monarch, or at least if they didn't want a monarch, they wanted the head of state to be addressed and treated as if he were a monarch. And we rejected that. And I'm pleased we did. Mr. President is about as good as I think the head of our executive branch deserves. I would now take it a step further. I would only describe as president whatever the person who is in office. I think this this habit we have of referring to President Trump, President Obama, President Clinton, President Carter is bizarre. The office they held legitimately is a temporary political position. They're not permanently president. It makes sense to call medical doctors doctor for their entire lives because they have obtained a skill set. It's also communicative. It's important to know if there is a doctor around, if you're on an airplane uh, and there is a a medical crisis. Sure. What they're essentially asking when they ask over the PA system, is there a doctor on board? Is is there somebody who possesses the skill set to help? That's true whether they're straight out of medical school or whether they're post-retirement. But 
if you say who is the president, there's only one answer. And yet we have this really strange habit. We call Barack Obama, who was legitimately elected president twice, served for eight years, President Obama. He's not. We call Jeb Bush, who was governor of Florida for two terms, I think he did a great job, Governor Bush. He's not. We call um, Orrin Hatch, Senator Hatch, great career, but he's not a senator. And I think one of the ways that we could demystify our politics and bring our politicians down a little bit is to insist that they use their titles in the same way as do say people in business rather than people in academia. If you are the CEO of Coca-Cola and then you retire or are fired, nobody introduces you as CEO Jones. <laughs> and so this is Bob. <laughs> <laughs> he was the CEO of Coca-Cola. There's no reason that it should be different in our politics. We're not a, a hereditary aristocracy, and we shouldn't pretend that we are. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Um, I'm going to have rapid-fire questions for you, sort of. You can t still take your time, but what do you think about our policy in Cuba? Obama relaxed it. Trump kind of restored some of the sanctions. What's your position on Cuba? I take a lot of my cues on this as a Floridian from Cubans, and I'm broadly in favor of sanctions in that I think the United States has a moral responsibility to take a stand, not just on freedom around the world, but especially on freedom in an island that is a few miles off of one of its shores. And that the American model has been different than, say, the empire uh, was in the British model. Uh, but the Monroe Doctrine still obtained early on. And I, I think when you have a country that is that close, and al although you don't have the Soviet Union underpinning it, it still has some geopolitical implications in Venezuela, most famously. Um, I think that it is important for the United States to take active steps to try to um, throttle communism wherever it exists. And yeah, it's changed a bit over time. And yeah, the Castro's are gone, but... Um, it's still there in Cuba, and I, I favor a, a harsher policy to, to try and root it out. Do you favor term limits? No, I don't. Um, I don't think that... Well, actually, yes and no. Um, <laughs> I don't think at the moment they are necessary outside of the one circumstance in which we have them, which is the presidency. The idea that the root of our problems is career politicians is, I think, naive. Um, if you look at many of the great figures in Anglo-American history, they've been career politicians. Winston Churchill was a career politician. William Pitt the Younger was a career politician. Arguably, Ronald Reagan was a career politician. Mm -hmm. I think in, in some senses, one of our problems at the moment is we have politicians who don't really want to be politicians, who are um, more interested in going on television, who see it as a, a jumping off um, opportunity, who run for president because they think they can make $10 million once they are out of the primary. Um, I think, and this is the, the yes, I think with the presidency, you had a, a perfect example of a man in Franklin Roosevelt who had essentially 
reneged on the agreement. George Washington declined to become a king and a permanent general, uh, and he left office after two terms. And he set a precedent, and that precedent was followed. It was followed for a century and a half. Uh, Calvin Coolidge followed it. Um, the, the first president who really tried to buck it was Woodrow Wilson, but his own party said no. We should tell you something about it. Woodrow <laughs> Wilson is the worst president in American history. <laughs> and then Franklin Roosevelt said, I'm going to keep running and keep running. And I think it was a problem. And I think Congress and the states were right to pass the amendment that limited. And I think, for example, I would favor a similar rule with the Supreme Court limiting the justices to nine because there's been a violation now of that understanding that has obtained since 1869. But generally speaking, I think we arguably need more experience in Congress, more experience in the Senate, more long-term thinking in the states. Um, and, I, and I think the, the conservative or right-leaning obsession with term limits is is misguided. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm a roller coaster nut because I know I'll never fly with a Thunderbird in an F-16. What got you into them? Mm. I have always loved them. I, you know, I, I threw a temper tantrum in a town square in France, the age of six. We had driven on maybe five, six hours to this town. And on the way in, there was an amusement park there. And there were two problems for me. One was I wasn't tall enough to ride the big roller coaster that I could see from the road. And the second was that it wasn't open until Saturday and we were leaving on the Thursday. And I threw a huge temper tantrum. I mean, I, I think it sort of should go down in the annals of, of little kid temper tantrums. But I have always been obsessed with roller coasters. I first rode Space Mountain when I was three. I was quite tall. My parents wow. took me and my sister to Disney World. My dad and I went on Space Mountain. And since that time, I've been hooked. It's, it's partly a, a, a matter of obviously physical sensation. And then there's a train spotting element to it. This sort of train spotting for people who don't mind getting their hair messed up. It's, uh, I, I think they're beautiful. I think they, they are great feats of engineering. Um, I, I like escapism. Um, I, you know, if you, if you can find a new way of sort of throwing me around and, and I, I'm reasonably assured that I'll be safe, I, I'm in. <laughs> just it's always been that. are you a wooden or steel fan i like both and i both. think they're completely different experiences um yeah. and also it, it's worth saying we, we should really divide wooden into two camps now because on the one hand you have the older right. now so we lost so many roller coasters during the depression because the economy tanked and they were more valuable in most cases as firewood so the number of roller coasters in the united states during the depression it goes from about 4,000, all wooden, because tubular steel track wasn't invented till 1957. Um, that they, they goes from about 4,000 down to about 300. Um, and so you've got these old ones, many of which are wonderful, but then the Renaissance came in the 70s and 80s, and it's a totally different technology, especially now with prefabrication. Um, but I just love all of them. I'm, there, there is no roller coaster I won't ride and none that I don't love or or look at lustfully when I see pictures of it in some faraway land. Have you seen Falcon's flight in Kadia? Where is that? 
What's Kadir? It's outside of uh, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Six oh, flags, well, Kadir. so that hasn't been built yet, though, right? The... No, it's opening in 2023, but it's uh, two and a half miles long. It's 125 yeah, no, miles that, an hour. That thing, that thing does look incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think it's unlikely I'll get over to ride it anytime soon, but it's going to be a great roller coaster summer in Florida because COVID has pushed back a lot of openings. So whenever the, the tourist trade comes back in, in earnest, you're going to see this explosion. I think we have five new massive roller coasters opening. I'm going to be, I'm going to be hitting the road. Awesome. Well, that's great. Unfortunately, Charlie, we're up against our next break and folks would like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. And now a word from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking today with Charles Cook. And Charles, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a speech that you gave in Utah about why we need weirdos. And just a quote from the speech, I love this quote. Excluding people who are different will exclude people who make a difference. Talk about that. I think that we are at real risk of trying to straighten the crooked tree of humanity and in so doing exclude or uh, excluding or blunting the sort of people who actually make great strides in our society. Part of what I was talking about was cancel culture, where somebody who steps out of line or says something that the regnant culture dislikes is dismissed from public life at the first hurdle. Part of what I was talking about was a general conformity that I see creeping in that will discourage the weirdos and the the oddballs from making a difference. 
Um, and part of it was this rise of human resources as the most important department within many companies when really they should be there in a facilitating role. And what I pointed out was, if you look at the British Empire, so many of the people who did great work were certifiable. <laughs> um, and, and, and if not certifiable, were socially strange. Uh, look at our e elite class now, the people who are there because they deserve to be, not because they've learned how to climb the ladder. Elon Musk, is that guy normal? No. <laughs> Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. When I said this in the speech, Steve Jobs, objectively, was actually kind of an ass, <laughs> but he was also brilliant. And we have to decide as a culture, what do we care more about? Do we think that some of Steve Jobs' behavior should have disqualified him from the rest of the stuff that he did? And I don't think it should. Now, some of this conversation gets a little bit unpleasant because you, you turn to people who actually had genuinely ab abhorrent views. Henry Ford, for example, clearly anti-Semitic, ran uh, or tried to run an anti-Semitic publication out of his headquarters at Ford. But I don't want to live in a country in which Henry Ford didn't do what he did. And so what I was really calling for was a, a greater tolerance and understanding of people who are different, and in some cases, actually objectively unpleasant, on the understanding that you're unlikely to find the people who invent and think and revise, you're unlikely to find in them the Boy Scout that you hope to be the, the avatar for modern society. It's just not realistic. So often the thing that makes somebody so influential or so important or, or such an out of the box thinker is also what makes them difficult. And if we, you know, the, one of the examples I gave was Alan Turing, who was a brilliant mathematician um, who helped win the war by, by leading the team that decoded the Enigma machine in World War II. Now, Alan Turing was a strange guy. He was probably on the spectrum. Um, he was hyper-literal in some ways. And I, there was one incident I read that he, he was told, well, Winston Churchill wants to meet with you in Downing Street. There was a government car waiting for him but he left the hut that he was working in and he ran to London. Get you ran to London from Bletchley. <laughs> now, what do you do? You say, well, this guy's a total weirdo, kind of sideline him. And then many, many more people die. So I'm just, what I was calling for on that speech is a reevaluation of our priorities um, so that we we value more what people actually do than what they say and think and how they are at parties. I think it's George Bernard Shaw, right? All progress depends on the unreasonable man. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and you know, often the people who are unreasonable are at the margins of society. They have different views. They're not particularly interested in pleasing anyone. And, and again, to, to, to labor the point, that's why they see the stuff that the rest of us don't. Yeah. It, it, interesting. I do another podcast for Sage and I have an exit question. It's a short form podcast. And the exit question is, who is a hero of yours and why are they a hero? And it's interesting to hear the response. Oftentimes, the answer is prefaced with the following. Well, I don't have any heroes, but I do admire people greatly. And I'm like, well, 
And so I do think that to your point, how would you respond to this, that we have in some ways misunderstood the term hero. Heroes usually have a tragic flaw. That's actually part of being a hero. And we have mythologized heroes to be what my Catholic faith would call saint. And that's not what we're talking about here at all. No, I, th- I think that is exactly right. And, and this goes back obviously to the Greeks and the Romans is that you, you did not consider your heroes to, to mix the metaphors to be Jesus Christ. And mm-hmm. they were not without sin. They were people who played a role within the society that made a huge difference. And sometimes they made a sacrifice um, that, that advanced that society's interest or in some cases saved that society, but, but nobody expected them to absolve them of their, you know, <laughs> their sins or, 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 or be without, um, without sin. And, and, this is, this is where I think cancel culture is just entirely unreasonable in that it, is, it makes demands of people that they can never, ever live up to. And the only way that you can, you can seem to live up to it is to buy into whatever it is that the people who are setting the rules have established as the perfect life and then shut up. And you can do that. And, and, you know, without being hyperbolic, that is how every apparatchik in a communist government behaved. They were perfect on paper because they read the rules and they followed them to a T. But that's actually not how you make great strides forward. It's not how you split the atom. It's not how you fix the Enigma machine. It's not how you invent the personal computer. It's not how you put men on Mars. Nobody who is able to do that is interested in reading a set of a catechism of sorts and, and, and following it to the letter of the law so that nobody ever gets upset. And if we don't remember this, we're actually going to really screw ourselves as a culture. And that is a tragedy because yeah. America is the best place in the world for people who are a little bit different and who have an idea. Yep, absolutely. It's like the, the commercial that Apple had. Here's to the here's to the rule breakers. That great, great commercial. Um, we have about a minute left. Just want to see what's coming up for you, Charles Cook. What do you got? Another book in in the hopper? Maybe. I may have another book. I actually was <laughs> was on my own steam writing a book on um, on amusement parks, and um, I, I don't know whether it's anything's going to come of it. But I just at the point at which I needed to do the road trip part of the book, COVID hit. <laughs> so this is saved on my computer, very safe, backed up. But um, I'm waiting for everything to reopen. There may be another book. I'll have more news on that probably in the next two or three weeks. All right. Well, Charles Cook, senior writer with National Review. Thanks so much for being on the Soul of Enterprise today. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Charles. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Uh, Ron, coming up next week, you know, I was supposed to ask you that question, but I have to pull up my spreadsheet. We have, we're talking about factors uh, and price sensitivity and the subscription model. So that's going to be two topics that we love talking about combined into one. Awesome. I'll see you in 167 hours. Sounds good. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 12 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes with our interview with Charles Cook today. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe 
at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.